0: In 1948, the HMT Empire Windrush, formerly a German troop ship, docked at the port of Tilbury in Essex. It carried hundreds of people, mostly from the Caribbean, people who were moving to the UK to live and work. These arrivals from the Caribbean were citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies. They came from places like Jamaica, Antigua, St Lucia and other islands. And so they had the right to move around, work and settle within the British Empire as British citizens. The arrival of the Windrush boat became a symbol of the beginning of post-war migration, what some have called the irresistible rise of multiracial Britain. There had been black and brown people living on the British Isles for many centuries, but Britain really became an ethnically diverse country in the post-war years, and the Windrush, the boat, has come to symbolise and represent the beginning of that process. Importantly, the arrival of so many black and brown people from the colonies sparked racist resentments among the white population, Resentments that continued to define British political culture. 70 years later, a scandal emerged with the same name, the Windrush Scandal. It was discovered that people who moved to the UK from the Caribbean before 1973 were being caught up in Britain's uh, hostile environment immigration policy. People who moved to the UK before 1973 were entitled to an automatic right of abode, which meant they shouldn't have been subject to any immigration controls. But years later, when the British government demanded that everyone living here must present evidence of their immigration status when they want to access basic rights and services, many people from the so-called Windrush generation couldn't prove that they actually had arrived before 73 and that they'd been here consistently since. And they were disbelieved by the Home Office. And the Home Office is a government body that deals with immigration matters. And so thousands of people who were originally from the Caribbean and moved many years ago found themselves charged for NHS hospital care, excluded from the right to work, excluded from the right to rent a house or open a bank account, and some were actually deported from the UK or excluded from re-entering the UK after they'd been back to the Caribbean for funerals, for example. A few months earlier, on the 14th of June 2017, a fire broke out in a 24-storey block of flats in North Kensington. In the Grenfell Fire, 72 people lost their lives, and there has been an ongoing campaign to seek justice for the victims and their families. The cladding on the building on the outside of the building was not safe, and the residents felt both, felt both ignored and endangered by the local council, who clearly had hopes for regeneration in the area. After the fire had burnt out, it became clear that many of the residents were too frightened to ask the government for help because of their immigration status. Most of the victims were migrants who come from elsewhere, and many of them were Muslim. And they didn't feel safe approaching the police or Theresa May's government because they lacked the rights, the legal rights, to access those same public services. Remember, the hostile environment immigration policy denies so-called illegal immigrants. And it's important that we we use scare quotes around the term illegal immigrants um, because it's a term used to demonise people. The hostile environment denies so-called illegal immigrants access to basic rights and services. And the victims of the Grenfell tragedy felt that the government was more interested in deporting them than in helping them. Both the Windrush scandal and the Grenfell fire raise urgent questions for sociologists and for people concerned about tackling racism. They remind us that racism is not only about people being intolerant, uh, prejudiced or bigoted, but also about the social and institutional structures that organise who is entitled to what. In this lecture, then, I want to invite us all to ask some questions about racism, rights and exclusion, particularly in terms of immigration controls. The Windrush scandal and the Grenfell fire raise questions which we should all be asking when we study modern societies. Who is a member of the political community, of the nation? Who qualifies for citizenship and who is excluded? How does this change over time? Why and with what effects? And what does this have to do with racism? Finally what kinds of practices are then justified against people who are not citizens, who are foreign, who are not members of the political community? And I want us to keep thinking about these questions not only throughout this lecture but as we go on uh, through through the rest of this course uh, and, and in our lives in general thinking sociologically about societies we live in. So firstly we might ask who is the migrant this is an important question when thinking about who counts as a member of the political community, who is excluded, and what can be done against people who are excluded from membership. So who is the migrant? Not everyone who moves across borders for longer than a short visit gets called a migrant. Uh, as we can see from these images, uh, the guy on the right with the with the suit on might be called an expat or there are other kinds of people who travel abroad and live abroad for a while. There are soldiers, there are travellers, backpackers, diplomats, students. In the context, in the UK context, for example, elite businessmen, French nannies and Australian backpackers are rarely what the tabloid press mean when they talk about immigrants. On the other hand, black and brown British citizens are often referred to as second or third generation migrants. And so for some people, people who are racialized, The migrant label is hard to shed. What we see here is that the the migrant as a a term is not neutral. Uh, It's not a neutral term for anyone who isn't a British citizen. It's loaded and filled with racial implications. And so it is racism that defines some immigrants as problematic and dangerous. Many of us know this. Uh, We see it every day in the media coverage of particular stories about migration and the language used. But... Thinking this way helps us keep a critical distance from the dominant narrative, which says that immigration control, immigration policy has nothing to do with race. It's just about protecting the interests of the national economy and the national community. But when we look closely at the history, it is impossible to pretend that immigration policies are race neutral. And so here I want to give us a quick kind of short history of British immigration and nationality policy. Actually, immigration controls are quite new. The first modern immigration controls used in the in the u k context was the nineteen o five aliens act that 's only one hundred and fifteen years ago the nineteen o fives alien nineteen o five aliens Act was a response to specifically to the arrival of Jews from Eastern Europe who were escaping persecution and for example, in nineteen o five an editorial in the Manchester Evening Chronicle, a newspaper wrote. the dirty, destitute, diseased, verminous and criminal foreigner who dumps himself on our soil and rates simultaneously shall be forbidden to land. This is the justification for exclusion. It sounds very familiar when we think about more recent languages about people arriving on boats. Importantly then, anti-Semitism was central to the introduction of the UK's first modern immigration controls. So, when the Windrush boat docked at Tilbury in 1948, there was already a history of racist concerns about immigration, about foreignness. And of course, the point here is, is that Britain did need people to fill labour shortages after the war. It, it really did, but it was, it was racism that determined who was welcome and who was not. Like the Jews escaping pogroms from Eastern Europe over 50 years earlier, people from the Caribbean and from the Indian subcontinent were deemed undesirable associated with crime and disease and defined as putting pressure on services like housing, health care and employment. That was all there back then, the same languages. These racist concerns justified profound changes uh, to immigration and nationality law and that's what I want to trace here. In response to those racist resentments about the wrong kinds of people arriving and claiming, claiming things that they weren't entitled to as racially undesirable groups, and then influenced what laws the British state implemented to control immigration and to define who counts as a political member and who can be excluded. So firstly, the 1948 British Nationality Act introduced Britain's British citizenship actually for the first time, and it created the category of Citizen of the United Kingdom and Colonies, which included everyone born or naturalised in the UK and its many many colonies, uh, all who had a right to move and work in the UK. So, This means that people from from former colonies, as well as people from current colonies. And, and, you know, this is a point when the British Empire is spans across the whole of the the world still and and, and colonizes many countries in the Caribbean, in Africa and in Asia. Um, And they were all entitled as citizens of the United Kingdom and colonies to move to the UK and to move freely within the empire. Uh, and even people from former colonies like India, which had gained independence the year before, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the old the old um, Commonwealth, also had the right to enter, work and settle as Commonwealth subjects. So in law, in 1948, British citizenship was defined so that 850 million people on every corner of the earth had the right to move to the UK uh, and the UK had a huge demand for labour. So this is important to rebuild after the war. But from the very beginning, some British subjects were more welcome than others. Black and brown newcomers were immediately a cause for concern, even though they were small in number. More people were arriving from Europe, from places like Poland and from Australia and New Zealand and Canada than so-called coloured migrants from the Caribbean, Asia and Africa. And yet the politics became focused, obsessed you might say, with these black and brown newcomers. It was coloured immigrants who were a problem and who threatened jobs, houses and brought disease and crime, who threatened the British racial stock. So, what did the British government do in response to this? The answer is quite simple. Change who counts as a citizen, change who counts as British, change the definition of political membership, and attach immigration restrictions to those different categories that you've created. And this is precisely what they did. In 1962, the government introduced the Commonwealth Immigrants Act which meant that colonial and Commonwealth subjects not born in the UK now had to apply for employment vouchers, and so the government for the first time had control over the number of people who were allowed in from the, from the Commonwealth. The 68 Immigrants Act, Commonwealth Immigrants Act barred the future right uh, of entry, entry to, to people who were, previously had been given a right of entry as citizens, to those only born in the UK or who had at least one grandparent born here. The Immigration Act 71 introduced the concept of patriality, which defined rights to settle in the UK in terms of ancestry in Britain itself. And of course, this was heavily racialised in terms of who could access ancestry. In practice, it meant Australians and Canadians found it a lot easier than Indians and Jamaicans, for example. And then, in 1981, Margaret Thatcher brought in the British Nationality Act, which formally ended any distinction, between people who were from the former colonies and people from anywhere else outside Europe, so it defines citizenship, British citizenship, solely in national terms as an island, um, and by descent, by blood, by, by which ends up being a proxy for race, uh, and also got rid of birthright citizenship. So since 1983, when the Act came into force, the 1981 Act, people born here in the UK are only British if their parents are British or if one of their parents has indefinite leave, settled immigration status. So there's no longer an automatic right to be born to citizenship for those born in the UK, and thousands of children are born each year who are undocumented and denied British citizenship. So this is what the UK did in response to the arrival of unwanted British subjects and racialised citizens. It just changed how political membership was defined, and basically removed any connection between the British Isles, and all of its many former colonies. This was undeniably about race and racism, about the exclusion of those deemed racially undesirable. And it really did make a huge difference. According to the official statistics, net migration was reduced to zero, so the number of people moving in against the number of people moving out kind of fell to zero or below from 1971 when the Immigration Act was brought in to the early 1990s. OK, um, so let's think a little bit about what's happened since then. And again, there's, there's a lot written on the history I just gave and some of the resources that have been provided can help with further reading on the history of immigration and nationality law. And then there's also a lot that's happened since the early 90s where I ended. I mean, the main summary is that former colonial subjects have been turned totally into what, what we might call aliens, subject to visa controls, immigration controls, exclusion, But the important point here is that people did not necessarily stop moving from the former colonies they still had family ties cultural ties historic ties had been educated in the british education system still had really compelling reasons to move from britain's many former colonies to britain Uh, so people did keep moving but they just did so with less rights so that's an important thing that, that the ways in which people who formerly would have been entitled to rights as citizens of the uk colonies might still move, but might be rendered temporary or illegal. Uh, th- the other thing that's happened since, from the late na- late 90s onwards, has been incredibly aggressive policies against people claiming asylum. Um, and you can you can do some further reading on that. There's also since 2004 been been contested debates around EU migration, whether there's problems with people moving from within the EU. And overall in this context, in this anti-immigrant context, there's been a massive increase since the late 1990s in the number of people who are being detained in immigration centres and deported, forced onto planes and deported against their will. But because it's hard to deport everyone who's been turned into an illegal immigrant, there's been a huge increase in the number of people with undocumented status or precarious status who still live in, in Britain. Uh, And that's an important point in terms of how we think about immigration controls impacting British society. And all of this is in the wider context of the war on terror, war in the Middle East, anti-Muslim racism, what we might call securitisation of everyday life. And all of this kind of leads towards a point where we get Brexit, uh, we get debates around the Windrush scandal, we get... Uh, The Conservative Party's shift to the right and winning a resounding election victory in December 2019, all on the back of a set of ideas about the problems of immigration, which we can trace right back to 1905, but which we can see some specific dynamics in the late 20th and early 21st century. Let's go back to the question of membership, though. Perhaps the most stark image of this shift from, from Commonwealth and citizen of the United Kingdom and colonies to something... Uh, of a more descent-based, island-based British national identity. Perhaps the most stark image of these shifts and this exclusion of people from the former colonies is the fact that each year thousands of former colonials are detained in UK immigration centres. Indians, Pakistanis, Jamaicans, Nigerians, Kenyans, Ghanaians, Bangladeshis, thousands detained indefinitely in immigration prisons run by private companies for profit like G4S, Serco, Almighty. Another example of how far we've come. Every few weeks, a mass deportation charter flight leaves for Jamaica, Nigeria, Ghana, Pakistan, former colonials deported by cover of darkness, restrained in body belts, exiled from their families and their friends in the places where they may have lived for many years. Again, we should return to the questions that I started with. Who is a member of the political community? How does it change? What does it have to do with racism? And particularly when we think about the people in immigration detention centres and forced onto mass deportation flights, what do we justify against those we define as foreign? With this in mind, we can return to the Windrush scandal. When the scandal emerged, politicians of all stripes seemed to agree on just how awful it was. They argued that the Home Office had enforced its policies against the wrong people, treating citizens who had worked hard and contributed as though they were illegal immigrants. But the whole story of the Windrush scandal is not particularly surprising if we think about how policies since 1962 have been designed to exclude people from the former colonies. Migrant activists and lawyers knew that this kind of thing had been happening for some time. The hostile environment did what it said on the tin. It was incredibly hostile. It impacted lots of different categories of migrant, as well as citizens who look like migrants or might be mistaken mistaken for migrants. In other words, while we can all agree that the Windrush scandal was a form of unjust violence against people who deserved rights, we might still ask whether all people might deserve basic and fundamental rights. So some have argued that it's not just about cruel policies targeting the wrong people, it's about the fact that the policies are cruel in the first place. Remember the hostile environment means denying people access to vital health care, denying them rights to essential benefits, shelter, housing, legal protections, the right to work. It means denying people the ability to live and feed themselves in the hope that they will they will be compelled to leave basically because because we don't want them here because we've got this anti immigrant politics around people we define as illegal immigrants in the British in British politics. So let's think about this, making people destitute in a hope that they will go home or be easier to identify, detain and deport can only be justified by racism and by racist culture. So while the Windrush migrants deserve better, we might argue that everyone deserves better who is subject to these inhumane immigration policies justified through racism. Now, this might help us think about the Grenfell story again, too. People who had faced such tragedy were afraid to approach the government for help. From their perspective, the government did not have their welfare at heart. Instead, it had labelled them illegal and undeserving, threatened them with destitution and deportation, and actually created the conditions in which the fire burned through their homes and they were disregarded. And so... Despite assurances that the victims of the Grenfell fire would not face immigration enforcement action, the environment still very much felt like a hostile one. These particular stories, these scandals, the Grenfell fire and the Windrush scandal, raise wider questions about racism and immigration control. And I want to leave us with some of these somewhat provocative questions. Uh, which we we can take with us when thinking about racism, rights and citizenship again the core question we should be asking in our study of modern societies who is a member of the nation how does this change over time why and with what effects what does this have to, to do with racism and what kinds of practices are justified against those who are not members, who are not citizens who are foreign and so while we should recognise the wrongs done to Windrush migrants and to the victims of the Grenfell uh, fire, we might then want to ask some even more searching questions. Should people need to have arrived before 1973 to access rights? Do they need to have contributed? Should they only be recognised as human, as, as deserving of rights, in the context of tragedy after their family members have perished in a fire. Now, one answer to the Windrush scandal that has been offered is to say that people deserve rights because of the history of empire, because, because, their, descent, because their ancestors contributed to the empire, because effectively people from countries like India, Jamaica or Nigeria have paid their dues. This is important. But I'm a bit cautious about this kind of accounting process where rights accrue to people because of debts owed for colonialism. We might also ask, what about the Albanian, Polish or Romanian migrants currently facing detention and deportation through the very same policies and the very same practices? Can we justify them being locked up and forced onto planes because, because they're not from formerly colonized countries? And so the real question here, if we want to move and take the lessons of history into building a kind of society that we want to live in, the real question is, what kind of society do we want to live in? What kinds of things will we accept done in our name? Do we want to live in a society where immigration enforcement vans arrive at dawn to separate parents from children, where those same immigration vans then raid people's places of work, taking people to detention centres because they have their own papers? where thousands are held in prison-like conditions without time limit, before then being forced onto planes in the middle of the night. This is what is currently being done in our name, in the name of protecting British citizens, protecting the national economy, and protecting the national community. But if we don't want any of this, any of these acts, and any of these laws, and any of these state practices done to anyone, then we need to challenge the logics of separation and exclusion that underwrite British nationalism and this means defending the rights of all migrants as many are currently doing. And so we need to know our history, the history I've outlined, the history of empire that we're going to talk about throughout these sessions, the history of immigration and nationality legislation. We need to know that history so that we can understand how immigration controls have always reproduced racism. But we might also want to demand fundamental rights for everyone rights to move around the planet, rights to access basic services and decent livelihoods, and the right to struggle for a world where no one can be called illegal and forcibly deported from their friends and families. And so I wanna leave us with with a thought about about anti-racism. The struggle against racism begins with the struggle for fundamental rights, freedom of movement, and basic dignity. It always has. And it always will.